Amen. Good morning. Good to see you this morning. If you've got a Bible with you, go with me to the book of Genesis again. Uh, We are going to be in chapters 42 through 45 again, as we were uh, last week. I did want to uh, mention to you uh, somebody that's going to be uh, leaving us this week, as I often do, is to give you an opportunity to say goodbye. Everybody's near and dear to my heart in our church that leads, uh, that, that comes to our church and then leaves, well, most of them. But uh, this, this particular person is nearer and dearer to my heart. It's, uh, it's my daughter, Stella. She's going to be leaving for uh, college this week, and so I uh, wanted you to know that so that you can say uh, goodbye to her, and if you're wondering why I am approaching this in such a glib way, it's because I will have a complete breakdown on stage if I approach it any other way. So please make sure uh, that you, if you would like to say uh, goodbye to her, make sure that you uh, say goodbye to her and let her know that you're praying for her. Genesis chapter 42 to 45. Last week we began uh, looking at the story of Joseph's reunification with his brothers. And we're not going to walk through all the details of that story again, which means that if you were not with us last week, this puts you at a little bit of a disadvantage. I know many of you are probably aware of this story. You know the story well because you've grown up in church, but there are probably people here with us where you are not familiar with this story. And so if you weren't here with us last week when we walked through that story, let me just encourage you this afternoon, you can catch up on it. Uh, It's Genesis chapters 42 to 45. It'll be about a 15-minute read if you read it slowly, and that will bring you up uh, up to date on the details of the story. But it is the story of Joseph's reunification with his brothers. They are suffering the effects in Canaan of this worldwide famine that's going on. And so they come to Egypt to buy grain because they have heard that there is grain for sale in Egypt. And the interesting thing about the story that sets up the tension right at the very outset is that when they actually have an audience with Joseph, he recognizes them, but they don't recognize him. Joseph, at this point, has spent more of his life in Egypt than he has in Canaan with his family. And so, in all likelihood, he looks and perhaps carries the culture of Egypt more than his home culture, the culture of his family. And so they don't recognize who he is, but the story moves forward. The tension starts to build until you finally reach this point where we have the big reveal, when Joseph reveals himself to his brothers. And when he reveals himself to his brothers, they are absolutely dismayed, the Bible tells us. And they're dismayed because this is not just the the reunion of of a group of people who have been separated for a long time and and now are reunited. This is a reunion of brothers who have betrayed him and sold him into slavery, if you know the story well. The the brothers have this, this feeling in the pit of their stomach. The floor drops out from under them as they realize that they are now standing in the presence of a powerful man who can do absolutely whatever he wants to them. And I mentioned to you last week that 
that if I was in Joseph's position, I may have been, uh, I may have, have been tempted to keep score, to remember all the slights that had, had happened to me, to, to, to let that, that anger uh, feed it, to let it burn, to remember everything that is done and all the difficult circumstances that I have had, and then you have served up to you on a silver platter an opportunity to, to pay back, to take your revenge. That's what Joseph's brothers think that he is going to do. But Joseph does something in this story that doesn't quite make sense. Rather than choosing the path of payback, Joseph chooses to forgive. We have been looking at the life of Joseph through the lens of something that he says in chapter 50 at the end of our story. He's having a conversation with his brothers and he says one of the most famous verses in Genesis, what man meant for evil, what you meant for evil, God meant it for good. And that is the lens through which we have been examining the story. All of the, all of the things encompassed in that it, because it encompasses a broad range of experiences, some of them terrible, some of them awful, some of them good, some of them experiences of grace. And so last week we began considering this truth, God uses forgiveness for good. God uses forgiveness for good. And the question we began asking last week was this, how does God use forgiveness for good based on this story? And I began giving three answers to that question from our story. We saw last week, first of all, if we're answering the question, how does God use forgiveness for good? Number one, forgiveness frees us from guilt. Forgiveness frees us from guilt. And as we were talking about this idea that forgiveness frees us from guilt, we focused mostly on the vertical aspect of this freedom from guilt, our guilt before God. This, this I said last week that many of us carry through life baggage. The guilt that we carry with us day by day that we feel in our relationship with God that weighs us down. And we saw that this story gives us a beautiful picture of what it looks like to be able to lay that guilt aside, to be able to come to God bearing the, in the prison of our guilt, bearing the weight of our guilt, and, and God using forgiveness to free us from that guilt. Joseph's brothers carried the guilt of their betrayal and their lie to their father that they had to perpetuate year in and year out for 22 years. And the story shows us that this guilt had been eating them alive, eating them from the inside out. And we asked, what could, what could have freed them in that situation? As they, as they stood before Joseph with the 22 years that had passed, what could they possibly do to fix it? Nothing. There was nothing that they could do to make up for what had happened. The only thing that could free them from their guilt was forgiveness. 
which Joseph freely offers and which models for us the forgiveness we have in Christ. Now that's a long catch-up from where we were last week. But we, before we move on from, this, from talking about this, this, this principle of forgiveness freeing us from guilt, I'd like us to explore forgiveness in the horizontal relationships. Because yes, this, this story pictures for us the forgiveness that we have through Christ with God our Father. But the story isn't just a picture. It involved real relationships between two groups of people, two parties, the sinners and the one sinned against. Forgiveness frees both. For the offender, for the one who has done the sinning, the freedom of forgiveness requires confession of sin. It requires us to own our sin. And in our horizontal relationships, when we sin against each other, what we often do is try to find an alternative pathway to freedom that's something other than fully owning our sin. Let me give you just a, just a couple of examples of alternative pathways to freedom that do not actually lead us to freedom. One of those alternative pathways to freedom is blame shifting. Now imagine the blame shifting that Joseph's brothers could have done in this situation, and probably did. They've got some issues with their father, right? Their father had clearly shown favoritism to Joseph. He had given, he'd gone so far as to given Joseph a, an article of clothing clearly marked him out as the favorite so that every time they saw it, they could realize, yep, in the hierarchy of who our father loves, Joseph is the top, at the top and we fall somewhere underneath that. So they could have blame shifted about the family that they had grown up in and said, if only our father, if we did not, only we did not live in this dysfunctional family, then something like this wouldn't have happened. They could have shifted blame on Joseph himself who had the audacity to explain his dreams to them and to tell them that he was having these dreams of of the sun, moon, and stars bowing down to, to him. I mean, who does that? Kind of had it coming in some ways. Now, was it true that their father had shown favoritism to Joseph? It was. And that did breed a resentment of Joseph in them. It is not blame-shifting to recognize the very real influence that our experiences have on our behavior. You are a product of a lot of experiences, some of which you have ownership of and many of which you do not have ownership of. Things that have happened to you through life, through family situations, through whatever. And it can be immensely helpful to understand yourself with the assistance of 
a trusted counselor. But we move into blame shifting when we use our very real history and experiences to excuse our sinful choices. And let me tell you, while it may may feel like a path to freedom, it may make us feel better to blame everyone around us for our choices, all this does is heap more blame on others. It continues to imprison us and also imprisons others. Another way that we seek to that we that we seek freedom from guilt is not only through shifting the blame to others so that I don't feel so bad about myself, but also in trying to make up for our sinful choices. Now don't get me wrong, the Bible teaches that we ought to make reparations where possible for the wrong that we've done. Remember Zacchaeus? Zacchaeus is is exploring following Jesus, and when he finally does put his faith in Jesus, he demonstrates his repentance by restoring what he has defrauded people from. There are other places in Scripture where the people, where hearers are told that they need to bear fruit in keeping with repentance. And these instances, restoration is the fruit of forgiveness. But we often try to find our way out of these feelings of guilt that are weighing us down rather than simply owning the guilt with that person or those people, we try to make up for it. And of course, we all know the parents who have failed at their parenting or are unavailable to their children and try to make up for their poor choices by buying their kids more and more stuff. And examples could be multiplied of of trying to make up for our failures. But this too is a path to prison rather than freedom. We are imprisoned by wondering if we have ever done enough or when it will ever be enough. Joseph's brothers were forced into a situation where they were going to have to own their guilt. It's kind of fascinating to me that the Bible doesn't say anything about this aspect of the story. But they had to have a conversation with their dad, right? I mean, they got to go home and deliver the news your son Joseph is alive. <laughs> By the way, we, we sold him to slavery. But he's alive now. And, and Jacob's like, what, what was that thing you said? The Bible doesn't tell us anything about that conversation, but they had to have a difficult conversation because if they didn't have that conversation ahead of time and they bring their father to Egypt and there's this joyful reunion, they're all together and, and Jacob says, uh, how did you get free from the lion? Because we found, your, we found your coat and it was all bloody. Like, tell me what happened. And it's like, well, funny you should ask. Uh, these brothers of mine, okay, so they, the Bible tells us nothing about that exchange. 
But those brothers, if they were going to go back to Egypt and get more grain, which they desperately needed, they were forced into a position where they were going to have to own their sin. They were going to have to own their guilt. But, let me tell you this, honesty brings freedom. And the only way to truly be free from your sin is to own your guilt. Let me provide a couple of clarifications on this. Full forgiveness from our sin doesn't mean full trust. A person, for instance, who is a known child abuser can be forgiven. There is no sin which cannot be pardoned through the work of Jesus on the cross. But full forgiveness does not mean full restoration to trust. And sadly, the church has often throughout its history made mistakes in these categories which have enabled abusers. Furthermore, full forgiveness does not mean the absence of legal consequences. In some instances of sin, there are legal consequences that are not avoided even though full forgiveness can be given, even if the one who commits the sin is repentant. But it is the path to freedom from guilt. The only path to freedom from guilt And our relationships is through owning our sin, confessing our sin. That begins us down the path to freedom. Now, we've been talking about the offender, but what about the offended? What if you are the person who has been wronged? And in this, uh, Joseph models for us something that the Bible teaches. The Bible teaches radical forgiveness. And we see that among Jesus' disciples as as one of his disciples asked him, if if a person asks me to, to forgive him seven times, like, should I go that far? And Jesus takes what he thinks is, his, is a reach that you would forgive somebody seven times and tells him 70 times seven, which is not a way of saying that once you reach 490 times, then you're done. Keep the little clicker in your pocket so that you can keep track. Now, what Jesus is saying is that what he calls us to is radical forgiveness, And that is a forgiveness that makes us uncomfortable. Jesus calls us to a forgiveness that I don't want to do. I frankly do not wish to forgive radically. But here's why Jesus calls us to such radical forgiveness. Ephesians chapter 4 and verse 32 says this, Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, 
forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. One of the problems with us as Christians is the longer you become, the longer you are a Christian, the greater your tendency towards self-righteousness. Because there be, what often happens is there becomes a distance between us and the cross. As we start moving forward in Christ and we start growing in Christ, some of us forget how much we have been forgiven. And so the Bible reminds us that a person who has been forgiven much forgives much. And we forgive one another because God in Christ has forgiven us. I don't know about you, but when I've been sinned against, I want a little bit of vengeance. And I'm not talking about John Wick vengeance. I'm just talking about everyday relationship kind of vengeance. The, re- the, the vengeance that we have in our interpersonal relationships, whether it be with your children or with your spouse or at work or with friends or with your parents. Were you going to treat me like that? Okay. I'm going to treat you like this and see how long it takes you to notice. We think that we will find freedom from the hurt of being sinned against if we can inflict pain ourselves. And of course, there are sometimes, as I've said, legal consequences that are a matter of justice. But there is a difference between vengeance and justice. And there are channels for pursuing the latter and not the former. We sometimes want to exact something from someone by withholding forgiveness from them. Listen to this. Withholding forgiveness doesn't just imprison them. When you withhold forgiveness, it imprisons you. Withholding forgiveness would have hurt Joseph as much as, if not more than, his brothers. In fact, if, if Joseph had allowed that root of bitterness to, to extend its roots further and deeper in his heart, he could have had 22 years to build up a tree of resentment with deep roots. But it would have poisoned him. And so Joseph left it in the Lord's hands. And in leaving it to God, he not only freed his brothers, he freed himself. And I know that that just seems like the opposite of what's 
true. But it is the gospel way. My daughter and Ruby and I recently saw a, uh, a movie of a stage play of The Hiding Place. Some of you may be familiar with the story of Corey Ten Boom. There was an old movie that was made for her several, uh, about her several years ago. Uh, but there's a stage play that was then filmed and shown in select theaters. We got to, to see that movie. But Corey Tenboom and her family are well known to many of us for harboring Jews during World War II. They were uh, living in Holland. Her father was uh, a watchmaker and a watch repairer. And they became involved in an underground resistance during the Nazi occupation to funnel Jews to safety. And it's believed that, that the Tenboom's family... Uh, as part of this underground network, we're able to rescue somewhere around 800 Jews as their home was a stop in this underground system to bring them to safety. She had, uh, in her bedroom, she had a false wall built uh, where people could hide within the walls of their house. In fact, you can still go there and see it to this day. But Corey and her family were given up by an informant eventually, And she and her father and her sister and her brother were sent away to a concentration camp. Her father's health was frail, and so he died within just a few days of being at that concentration camp. Her sister's health was not good, and over a period of weeks, her sister died in the the concentration camp. Her brother lost his life also. Corey was eventually freed and later found out that she was freed through a clerical error. She was never supposed to be freed. She was supposed to be sent with another group of women uh, to be finally exterminated. And yet, in God's providence, she was freed. But what Tenboom does after the war is remarkable. Because what she does is then begins a a speaking tour about forgiveness. And the places that she goes to speak about forgiveness are places like Germany. And Corey is speaking in Germany at one point to a group of people and speaking to them about forgiveness. And when her talk was over she saw a a man from the back coming towards her. And as she saw this man get closer and closer to her, she felt her heart freeze within her because she realized the closer this man got that this was one of the guards at the camp where she had been kept. It is one of the guards who had shown great cruelty to herself and to others. As he stepped forward to her, she wondered what in the world he was going to say to her. And as he stepped forward to speak to her, he told her that since her time in the camp, he had become a Christian. And he told her that he knew God had forgiven him, which is a huge step. 
but, and these are, this, these are her words as she writes, but he stuck out his hands and he said this, I would like to hear it from your lips as well. Will you forgive me? What would you say to that? Nope. Nothing in Corey wanted to give, forgive him. But as she writes, as she's writing about this, she says that she silently prayed there in that moment and asked God to help her. And then she writes this. And so woodenly, mechanically, I thrust my hand into the one stretched out to me. And as I did, an incredible thing took place. The current started in my shoulder, raced down my arm, sprang into our joined hands, and then this healing warmth seemed to flood my whole being, bringing tears to my eyes. I forgive you, brother, I cried with all my heart. For a long moment, we grasped each other's hands, the former guard and the former prisoner. I had never known God's love so intensely as I did then. That's remarkable. When I think about my pettiness, (laughs) about the microaggressions that I receive in a week, The only thing that could free either of them is forgiveness. And so church, let me just speak a word to you this morning about this. Is there someone that you just feel the weight of your guilt for the wrong that you have done to them? And rather than just owning it and seeking their forgiveness, you've done everything but. Well, if it wasn't for this and this and this, we wouldn't be here. Trying to make up for it. Whatever strategy that you have tried to employ, can I encourage you to pursue the Bible way? Is there someone that you need to go to? And simply own your guilt before. You can't control whether they forgive you. The only thing you can do is is own your own response. And the flip side of that, church, is there someone here that you need to forgive? Does the Spirit bring anyone to mind this morning as we talk about this, that as you, as you think about it, you realize that you have been harboring a resentment in your heart for some time towards this person? You've been trying to exact some sort of 
petty revenge on this person. You've been hurt, and you want them to be hurt a little bit too, but maybe you're realizing this morning that your attempt to imprison them is imprisoning you. I'm not saying it's easy. I'm not even saying that you may say, you know, I, I want to do that. I'm just asking you if you might do what Corey suggests. And say, I don't, nothing in me wants to extend the hand of forgiveness. But I'll, I'll take the first step, Lord, if you help me. And you see... God doesn't use that to free you. If the Lord is bringing something up in your heart from either direction this morning, don't let today pass. Forgiveness frees us from guilt. All right. I got two more points. So we're going to have to put it in gear here to get done in time. Don't worry, the other points aren't as long. Although I do need more time, but I'm not going to take more time. How does God use forgiveness for good? First, forgiveness frees us from guilt. Secondly, forgiveness frames our perspective. Forgiveness frames our perspective. Joseph has a remarkable perspective that he shares in conversation with his brothers in Genesis chapter 45. I'm going to read verses uh, 5, 7, and 8 for you this morning just to remind you of how remarkable this perspective is. He says, And now do not be distressed or angry with yourselves because you sold me here. For God sent me before you to preserve life. Notice just briefly the interplay that's always going on all the time with all the circumstances in our lives. There's what people are doing and there's what God is doing. You sold me. God sent me. Now you figure out how to put those two things together and you let me know later when you figured it out. But somehow, you sold me, but God sent me before you to preserve life. And God sent me before you, verse 7, to preserve for you a remnant on earth and to keep alive for you many survivors. So, it was not you who sent me here, but God. He has made me a father to Pharaoh and Lord of all his house and ruler over all the land of Egypt. What a remarkable perspective that this man has. It seems that, that Joseph has in mind the bigger plan of God for his family. And there's, there's no way that Joseph could have been raised in Jacob's household and not been made aware of the promises that God had given to his father and to his grandfather and to his great-grandfather because God had promised them that he would give them a land and that he would make them a great nation and that through them all the families of the world would be blessed. And you can hear echoes of that in what Joseph says. Joseph is not just looking 
thinking about his own difficult circumstances. He has a broader perspective to see what God is doing in, in all of time. Joseph has a perspective on the sovereignty, sovereignty of God in the situation. Now listen to this. Joseph was a victim. Yet, he was able to escape victimhood as the sole determiner of his identity. What had been done to him was wrong. And what had been done to him had irrevocably changed the course of his life in ways that could not be undone. In that way, he truly was a victim. But on the other hand, he could see something bigger happening. He did not only see himself as a victim. There was a sense in which he was able to to see himself as being sent by God. Now, some of us in this room have had terrible things done to us. And there has been irrevocable damage in your heart and life because of those things. You have truly been victimized. And yet, Joseph models for us the hand of God in everything. I don't know or understand why God would allow something terrible like that thing to happen in your life. I don't have answers for it. But God will bring good out of your deepest hurts. Thirdly, forgiveness frees us from our guilt, it frames our perspective, and thirdly, focuses us on Jesus. As everything in the Old Testament does, Joseph's story of forgiveness points us to Jesus Christ. And I want to highlight two ways that Jesus, or that Joseph points us to Jesus. First of all, like Joseph, Jesus was sent to preserve life. Jo- Joseph says, we read it in Genesis 45 and verse 5, God sent me before you to preserve life. And this preservation of life that Joseph was sent to do came at great personal cost to him, did it not? He was sent from his father's house to a far country in some ways to sacrifice his own life to preserve the lives of others. And so has Jesus done for you. Jesus existed for all of eternity 
in the perfect intra-Trinitarian relationship. Father, Son, and Spirit in perfect relationship and harmony with one, with, with one another. And yet the Bible tells us that the Father sends the Son and the Son takes on human flesh and comes to a far country where that Son lays down His life, goes ahead so that our lives could be preserved. Like Joseph, He does so at great personal cost to Himself. And if you are here with us this morning and you have never put your faith in Christ, consider this truth. Christ was sent to give Himself on the cross so that you could be forgiven and freed of the penalty of your sins. Jesus came to preserve life. You need not carry your guilt You need not carry your sin. You may not fear the future death or hell that could await. Because all those who put their faith in Christ can have their lives preserved. And we encourage you to trust Him now. There's a second way that Joseph's story of forgiveness points us to Jesus. Like Joseph, Jesus reconciles his brothers, to his father. Hebrews chapter 2 tells us that Jesus is not ashamed to call us his brothers and sisters. Joseph's act of forgiveness not only reconciles his own relationship with his brothers, but it restores the relationship of his his, uh, brothers to his father. It brings reconciliation to the entire family. That his brother's sin had in many ways estranged them from their father, that they continued to live with him day in and day out. But Joseph's act of forgiveness reunited them all. And so it is with Jesus, whose sacrificial act of forgiveness unites us to our Father and brings reconciliation and wholeness to the family of God. Let me conclude with this. Forgiveness is a little bit crazy. Forgiveness doesn't always make sense. And I'm not standing here before you saying that any of this is easy. (laughs) I'm not standing here before you and saying forgiveness is a one-time thing. Do it, and it's over with. You think there may have been some ongoing relational turmoil there in Egypt as Jacob tried to wrap his head around the fact that he'd lost 22 years with his son because of his brothers? (laughs) You think when Joseph forgave his brothers that that just made everything perfect for the rest of their time? Do you think that Corey Ten Boom was just easily shrugged off all the, all the injustices that had done to, been done to her by her captors? 
It's not easy. And I'm not standing here before you trying to pretend like it is or trying to say, hey, look, I've done it, so you do it. Forgiveness is tough. It may be the hardest thing you ever have to do. Because it would involve letting go of something that has deeply wounded you. Some of you don't know what it would be like to live without that flame of bitterness burning in your soul. So I am not saying it's easy. And I'm not saying that you could just make a decision right now to do it. What I am saying is that God gives the willing grace to at least put out the hand. And you may have to put out that hand again and again and again if you keep taking it back. The Bible promises us, as it calls us to to forgive as we have been forgiven. It gives us examples of people who do it. And we have people like Corey Tenboom who told us about they did it. And, and sometimes you can't see how it will happen until you start. <coughs> I was recently reading a book uh, written by a couple whose marriage had fallen apart. And it was a mess. They write this book together. It was a total mess. Uh, Infidelity, uh, betrayals of all sorts. And they go into all the details. But it's also a story of forgiveness. And at the end of that book, the the wife uh, writes this. She says, My husband's grace and mercy to me It was so shocking. I was consumed by the shock of that grace. It made me mad that I couldn't just walk away and have the life that I wanted. Why wouldn't he just leave me or tell me to go? Why wouldn't he cut the final thread and let it be done? Why did he love me so much? It was annoying. He could hold this over my head, but somehow he does not. Forgiveness in a supernatural way. That kind of forgiveness is definitely not normal. Little about my story or my husband is normal. Nothing about Joseph's story is normal. But nothing about Jesus normal. And if you aren't sitting here this morning just a little bit scandalized by forgiveness, then you haven't heard us yet. Because forgiveness is scandalous. It makes us uncomfortable to give. 
it makes us uncomfortable to receive. Joseph's story shows us that God uses forgiveness for our good. Let's pray. Lord, I pray that you would help us to take in the wonder that we can be forgiven. For those who are here with us this morning who have been Christians for a long time but struggle under the weight of their guilt before you, would you help them see that they can be free in Christ? For those who are here this morning who labor under the guilt of their sin, would they believe that they can come to Christ for the first time and leave that burden of guilt at the foot of the cross. For those who are here this morning who have been sinned against, would you give them the courage and the strength to forgive? For those who have done the sinning, would you give them the courage to own their guilt? Would you protect us from being a self-righteous church? Would you help us to be freshly scandalized by forgiveness. Amen.